Welcome to Public Intellectual. Public Intellectual is a podcast supported solely by its listeners, and I wanted to thank a couple listeners and supporters today. So thank you to Akiko T. and A. Maureen Tant for their generous contributions. If you would like to donate, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash publicintellectual, where you'll find bonus episodes, show notes, and other exclusive content. A publisher sent me three copies of the new Steven Pinker book, Enlightenment Now, as if if I had three copies, I would somehow be three times more likely to read it. This is like a 500-page book, and they're taking up a lot of space in my house. And Pinker is just the latest in a long line of white dudes in the last few years to take up the task of defending the Enlightenment. Now, for decades, women and writers of color have been offering pretty generous and nuanced and interesting critiques of the Enlightenment. These critics have pointed out that the so-called ideals of the Enlightenment were and continue to be used to justify everything from colonialism to genocide to eugenics to the subjugation of women. Are these new defenders considering these criticisms? Of course not. When they talk about defending the Enlightenment, what they mean is just restating what they think some old dead philosopher said 200 years ago, as if nothing came after that. One of these defenders is Jordan Peterson, everyone's new dad. And what's interesting is the kind of intersection that has happened between atheist audiences, defenders of so-called Western civilization, and the alt-right, or at least angry white men online. And this dad quality is interesting to me. The patriarchy has been unable, due to its continued disintegration, to pass along the kind of dad wisdom that generations before came naturally through the family. But the patriarchy will find any way to replicate itself. And the newest way is Jordan Peterson. So I talked to John Gantz, a contributor to The Baffler and co-author of a recent essay on the Jordan Peterson phenomenon about what is going on with these men. So yeah, let's have let's have a super cool chat about the enlightenment for the kids. Um, you published a piece in The Baffler. Yes. Um, about Jordan Peterson, who David Brooks referred to as the, is it the most important public intellectual? Well, yeah, David Brooks kind of couched that, uh, calling him the most important Western intellectual in the world today, or intellectual in the Western world. He said it was my friend who said it, so he didn't actually say it exactly, but he repeated that. Is that the same friend that was like in Katie Roifey's piece, uh, The Unnamed? No, it was Tyler Cohen. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't wasn't like all my friends who are my sources. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Who refuse to be named. (laughs) Who refuse to be named. My my gossip circle who doesn't want to, yeah. Yeah. Who are, yeah. Um, yes. And, you know, he, he thought, you know, David Brooks recommended his work, you know, I guess pretty much without qualification as a way to sort of discipline and, 
and inspire the wayward young men of the 21st century who, you know, otherwise would, I don't know, get involved with the alt-right, even though this seems to be a good way to start them on that process. <laughs> um, so, you know, and he, he thought, he saw in, in Peterson's work, you know, this paternal aspect to it. Um, and, you know, David Brooks, sometimes referred to as America's dad, God help us, um, uh, you know, th thinks highly favorably about that kind of relationship between, you know, the the older generation and, and the younger. There's got to be this sort of mentoring, guiding, surrogate parenting, I suppose. And so he, he thought Peterson, you know, could be a really inspiring role model to to you know, the lost generation of men out there. And that's a very stupid idea. And he should have done his homework a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the, so the book, yeah, right, has this sort of paternalistic title, The 12 Rules for Life, which sounds yeah. like a book that you would give your son as he's going off to college, which is like... Um, you know, um, don't don't <clears throat> rape women and please do laundry at least right. once a year kind of stuff. Right. Um, but what are the 12 rules for life? An antidote to chaos is also the subtitle, which yeah. I enjoy very I much. I mean, I can't, I can't list them off for you, right. unfortunately. But they are, you know, uh, they're kind of a mixture. What, what's interesting about his whole thing is they're a mixture of really quotidian good advice about life, like clean your room and make your bed, which, you know, these are sound policies. But behind it all, he has this very peculiar metaphysics. Um, and it's a metaphysics that, interestingly enough, reinforces a lot of conventional and not even just conventional, quite regressive uh, views about the relationship between the sexes, what gender is, um, what, you know, the nature of racial discrimination is he he doesn't really believe that white privilege exists and he thinks that the very invocation of it suggests is racist so it's more than a self-help book it's an entire ideology connected i mean always in self-help books there's an implicit ideology you could say but he he in other works and in his youtube videos has this cosmology it's uh, it's a it's a entire worldview that he thinks uh, is rooted in human biology, and he jumps a lot of steps in the in the human sciences, or I don't know what you want to call it in philosophy. He says myths, you know, are somehow expressions not of particular cultures and the way they came to understood the world. They're, they're expressions of the of our innate structure of our brain. So. Which is, you know, an, an odd and kind of backwards idea that for some reason is not, you know, it has not passed that, has, has managed to go fairly uncriticized in the mainstream discourse about it. Yeah. The subtitle of The Antidote to Chaos is a kind of... Um, yeah, he seems to believe that femininity is a form of chaos and masculinity yeah. is a form of um, rational uh, thinking. Yeah. Because um, he's very anti-trans. 
Um, yeah. And I noticed that Camille Paglia likes him, um, which I think yeah. is because of the gender essentialism aspect of his work. Right. I think that they, she saw in him a kindred spirit as kind of another person who thought that the world is reducible to this eternal struggle between chaos and, and order and that there was a, you know, a, all these different, each co- cultural particular you see is kind of an expression of this cosmic struggle. The problem with that idea is that at first that seems kind of interesting and compelling, but ultimately it's very boring because <laughs> there's nothing a- is actually happening. When you see anything, it's just an expression of these abstract forces that, you know, you've identified already. So what's the point of thinking about anything at all or trying to address yourself to any particular situation? Everything is, you know, okay, it's some mixture of, of chaos and order. All right. That's so incredibly abstract. It's, it's useless. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I watch a movie, um, a lot of people say they like to use his categories as mythical categories to understand movies and that, that gives them some kind of, you know, bearings in the world. If I watch a movie, you know, I want to understand what the characters are doing and how it fits into a certain context and what the movie's commentary on society is or what the particular artist is trying to express. Now, if I just reduce the movie into the fight between chaos and order, it it becomes, you know, it, it, it's worse than, than not trying to interpret it at all. I mean, the story itself is more interesting than that interpretation could ever be. So on the one sense, the appeal of that, the appeal of turning everything into these abstract categories that are so reductive uh, that they they make everything bland and two-sided or is is strange. On the other side, you know, people are, are enthusiastic for it and not, you know quite emotionally enthusiastic for it and think that he's a a kind of prophet. Yeah. And it's the same as a sort of, you know, when the Catholic church used to, I guess they still do review movies and pop music and so on and so forth and say, this is um, either good or this is evil. It's the exact same dichotomy. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Or or like, you know, very like, it's not quite as bad. It's like, the worst kind of Marxist interpretations of stuff where like this represents the bourgeoisie and this represents the proletariat. And this is the dialectical interrelationship between them. It's just like, you know, you know, Georg Lukash when he went full Stalinist and was just like, everything was either, you know, this is good because it kind of is a, is a preconception of what communism would be, but this is the backwards part we'll leave out and everything just becomes applying role application of that. And it's, it's, um, I guess it's comforting. I mean, that's one theory that I had about it, that it provides some sort of metaphysical comfort because the actual experience of life is confusing and there are, it's, it's difficult to get the boundaries. It is not terribly mentally taxing because you know, pretty much what you're working with and you know how to play this game, this, the, mm-hmm. the language game or whatever. Uh, so it's, I, I can understand how someone could get swept in, up into it and how it could be seductive. But if you scratch the surface a little bit, it's, it's not only intellectually not very fun, it, but it's, it's even depressing and, and how, flat it makes it makes life yeah why are there so many 
white dude writers right now defending the Enlightenment. I mean, Steven Pinker just put out a book um, that his publisher will not stop sending me copies of. Like, I literally have three at the moment, and yeah. I, I need it to be out of my house. But uh, the Steven Pinker Enlightenment Now! Exclamation point. Um, and Steven Greenblatt does this and won't is oh. also working on another book because he cannot be stopped. Wait, the, wait, the <clears throat> the his new historicist guy? The, Steven Greenblatt, yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. I mean, he wrote The Swerve, which was um, all about how, uh, you know, uh, the renaissance saved us from the superstition and uh, oh, backwardness yeah. of the medieval era even though every yeah, yeah. medievalist in the world uh, mm. you know burned him in effigy as a result right. um but uh but yeah his his new book about adam and eve is um taking a uh taking something theological and turning it into Oh, philosophical yeah i read about that really, it was a really bad it was a really bad book yeah I, re I read a review and it just said it was really ponderous and 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 not good um okay so why what are the identity politics behind this kind of um faux enlightenment discourse or whatever what what is it i don't know i mean you know there is the hope i guess that without without that they've already accomplished the hard work of the enlightenment and they are and they embody reason itself and they don't have to do any criticism or self-reflection because the culture that they've been brought up in has already done it all i mean that is the ultimate anti-enlightenment idea that you know the the tradition that you're handed down is sufficient and you don't require any process of critique in order to, you know, create the world in a more equal way or even just to understand it cognitively properly. Mm -hmm. the, the, the slavish repetition of tradition is, you know, in the, in the traditional intellectual history of enlightenment, what they were fighting against. So, I mean, on the one hand, I understand the, I understand the, desire to stay in touch with that intellectual tradition because it's fascinating there's a lot of great stuff to read i do not subscribe to the belief that it's all just dead white guys and you need to throw it away but the other side of that which is that it's some static uh iconostasis of great names that you can repeat and contemplate for all time mm -hmm. is so out of keeping with the spirit of the enlightenment as a project that it's almost blasphemy if you can use that meaningfully in this context to to insist upon that to insist upon oh, okay part of that is insisting upon the natural science the validity of the natural sciences as you know being absolute well no i mean the natural sciences evolve the findings of natural sciences are always being critiqued, thrown away, you know, qualified, so on and so forth. There is no body of findings about science that is absolute. Mm -hmm. So the search for absolutes, I mean, like I said earlier, it's psychologically understandable, especially in a time right now where there seems to be an acceleration of, I don't know what, <laughs> social change. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I can understand the psychology behind it. I can understand the sociology behind it, that there's a group that feels it's 
traditional monopoly on knowledge is being threatened and that they would, you know, want to defend this turf. But it is, it is odd for them to call on this tradition, which is so mixed up with thoughts about criticism and self-reflection and, you know, attacks on, on custom and tradition as the, the body of custom and tradition that they believe needs to be defended. A, uh, a conservative enlightener is sort of a hard thing to really, you know, understand, except if you put it, if they think, okay, this is, this happens a lot. They think, well, you know, what if, what if we discover using the natural sciences that there are fundamental differences between men and women and you know like would you accept those findings or would you pretend for political reasons that they are not real <laughs> right so they, they pose this but the thing is that's so stupid because we're we're rapidly reaching a point where the finding the natural world yields almost immediately to our to our technological will so anything we discover as a as a truth of the natural world even in biology is not some kind of you know absolute that we just have to pay homage to as the as the the you know this is the way of nature it's not the way things work anymore i mean for better and worse we we can manipulate nature at will and we are constantly shaping nature according to our normative desires of the way things you know we want things to be so technology kind of gives the lie to the notion that we need to have some sort of like you know the the findings of natural science and 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 have respect for the differences that 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 comes out like there's just these hard truths that we we're eventually just going to have to rest on the situation that the enlightenment brought out is not that science is some kind of permanent body of knowledge that we can rely on it's much much more challenging idea than that it's mm -hmm. that the capacity of human will and criticism of what exists is is almost unlimited and trying to arrest that project after it's begun you know it's a it's an incredibly destructive project in some ways traditional societies uprooted the environment radically changed you know i understand the traumas that that come from that but attempts to arrest that are just not going to work mm -hmm. i think like it's it's the cat is out of the bag yeah the interesting thing to me about the defense of the enlightenment is that um um we've had decades now of crit critics right. <laughs> um writing um mostly women and uh non-western writers um criticizing uh, the Enlightenment project in a real way, in a logical way, and it's like they pretend that those writers just don't even exist. Like, I mean, I was kind of thinking about when uh, Mishra's Age of Anger came out, yeah, which is a book that I really, um, I really wanted to see um, written about in an interesting way. And what I mostly saw were people refusing to engage with what he was saying and this kind of weird dodge i mean i, I remember this piece and it was in one a prominent um uh i can't remember if it was the new york times or the tls but it was by charles king i think mm. um 
where he complained that Mishra, half the review was complaining that Mishra didn't uh, quote more women sources mm-hmm. as a way of not engaging with the text. Yeah. Um, as a way of sort of dismissing it out of hand without even having to think about what he was trying to do or say, which right. is funny because he uses, Mishra uses way more female sources um, in um, than any any other fucking person. Every other person just seems to, you know, quote Kant and think that's enough to get right. by with their arguments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the Mishra argument is sort of, from what I read part of that book, um, and I don't know it intimately, but, you know, he thought basically it, enlightenment failed in the sense that it became, you know, what consumerism spread across the globe instead of rationality, uh, instead of rationality. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think that there is a lot to that, that that's the problem is that the, what, what won in the enlightenment was technological progress, consumerism, capitalism, but not universal brotherhood of humanity, sisterhood too, and and rational debate and mm-hmm. democratic republics from 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 uh, across the whole globe. So the darker sides of the Enlightenment project, you know, and this is Adorno and Horkheimer's point and a lot of people's point, seem to have dominated, and the ethical parts of the enlightenment seem quite faint on the other hand people are terrified of the of the when the when the demand for ethical universalism arises it terrifies people in the in the certain in the in the i mean we're seeing this right now i mean the the i don't consider this movement in the history of human political movements what we're experiencing now with regards to sexual harassment is quite mild in the consequences for people and the way mm-hmm. it's taking place but you would think that the the reign of terror was outside for yeah. the way people are reacting to it yeah no one's getting guillotined yeah like yeah well <laughs> but i don't think that's gonna happen well we'll see yeah <laughs> um i don't know what, what are your plans but like the the yeah i think that when even quite reasonable and modest demands are put to create a more equal treatment of people, the 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 arguments and the the energy that is thrown in the way of that is really immense. And you know what we're talking about is examples of that. Like people just do not want to hear it. They don't want to hear. You may have to. You 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 know people really don't want to reflect. It's not even about losing power. It's just having the narrative of your life change to the point where it's no longer coherent in the way you thought it was. You're not... It's not going to be the way... Your life is is not going to assemble the way you thought it was. You're not going to be like, oh, you know, everything... I'm a normal guy. Like, you know, I, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty... Well, no. History intervenes and people have to come to a new understanding of themselves. Mm-hmm. And the world that they live in. And it's painful. But it's, to me, more painful to fight it. I don't know. I don't know. That's not everybody's experience. But it's more painful to throw up boundaries and obfuscations and engage in all this intellectual dishonesty and to try to 
you know, prevent the process of reflection from taking place, uh, which is how I interpret not all, but some of the criticisms of Me Too. I mean, I think a lot of them are intellectually honest. I think a lot of them are less. Um, I think what, what makes me angry is when the, the party of bullshit <laughs> wraps itself up. And this is in the same thing with talking about the enlightenment is that the people who practice the most rhetorical games and bullshit wrap themselves up in the cloak of intellectual honesty and the ones, you know, saying, saying like, we are the voices of reason, so on and so forth. No, you're not like you're, you're using this rhetoric, this, this, this veneer of rationality to basically fight this rear guard action. Mm -hmm. And it's a dishonest use of that tradition. So, I mean, that's my take on the Katie Royfe piece, for example, where it's like you you want to play this role of Orwell, mm -hmm. of this dissident, you know, I'm sympathetic to the views of the left, but the totalitarian side of it is <laughs> is, is 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 what's really wrong. Mm -hmm. Look, that's a very difficult and rigorous role to play to be like that level of critic. It is not you can't just adopt the rhetorical tropes and hope that it works for the best. People will call you on your bullshit and it won't go well. If you want to perform that kind of critique, it's a serious lifelong dedication might not win you many friends, but you know, you're going to get a reputation for being intellectually honest, which frankly, Royfi has not accomplished ever. <laughs> ever. ever. She, became she became famous for this trick basically a mm -hmm. it's a shtick and it's not it it really burns me up because the 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 playing at victimhood which she accuses everybody else of doing that that she does in saying like i'm the i'm the 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 person holding up the values of of critique and everyone else is losing their minds that the, the dishonesty of trying to play that game and it is so toxic to, because there are people I think who have honest uh, things to say that are counter to, you know, maybe, you know, the, the push of, of discourse. I think Laura Kittness is a very mm -hmm. honest writer and, and um, you know, really means what she writes and does not play those games. So when people do that, it, it hurts the, it hurts the lang the language behind like, you know, you can't say anymore. Like, you know, like, I think we should stop and think about this because everyone will immediately suspect you're, you're, you're playing those games. Mm -hmm. Like, no, that's a valid thing to say in certain circumstances, but now it's become a trope of dishonesty and you know, yeah. So my contempt for that is you know, kind of boundless. So, yeah. Yeah, and it was interesting that all the sort of 90s figures, um, Andrew Sullivan, Caitlin Flanagan, oh, Katie Royfe, Daphne Merkin, just yeah. lined themselves up voluntarily and shot themselves <laughs> in the head. It was really kind of amazing as an intellectual project. Neither one of them, none of them sort of learned yeah. from the experiences of the ones who came before. It was just like, no, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to condemn me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I thought they think. I thought they thought. You know what? It's interesting. I think they just weren't as sophisticated as they thought they were. 
I think. I mean, they oh, were, you thought Katie Royfu was sophisticated? No, I think <laughs> she was not as sophisticated as she thought she was. Oh, okay. Yeah, and all of them were. I think that they all believed. Look, I'm a hot shot. I'm gonna come along and I'm gonna blow people's minds mm. with my like contrarian take. Mm-hmm. Look, everybody was waiting for that and saw it coming. <laughs> Andrew Sullivan is a sophist of the highest order and has been for some time. His tearing people apart or, around the Iraq war is just shameful piece of intellectual bullying that no one has forgotten. And, you know, um, or when he um, accused ACT UP of being responsible for the AIDS deaths oh, rather yeah. than the Reagan administration. Yeah, um, that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's this it's this, it's the same thing. It's this it's this game of contrarian takes, which drives the public's fear in a certain way. Well, I mean, it has to. Someone mm-hmm. has to take the opposite position. Mm hmm. It is very hard to do it in an honest way. It's okay. It's very hard to look through. Like the thing about Katie Royfe is like when I was, you know, doing research about her, her, her past as a writer, mm-hmm. which I knew a little bit about because I watched her. Do you ever see her interview with Charlie Rose? Yes. Yeah. Charlie Rose and uh, Rebecca Walker. Rebecca Walker and, and who Christopher else Hitchens. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and Naomi Wolf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. Um, it's a, interesting because a lot of debates are the same. Um, but, you know, if you watch her in that, it's very difficult to think if you, if you, take ideas seriously that this person is not full of shit. And then if you read the way that she constantly misrepresented information in her career, um, the way she took cases that she read about in the newspaper about uh, saying like, Oh, this, this, you know, look at this bullshit that got blown out of proportion. And then a real reporter comes along and they looked at that case. And it was like, well, actually that was a case of quite forcible rape that you were, you were using as an example as kind of like gray area. Yeah. Like, so like this, that tendentious effort to, to, to make her argument at all costs is, I mean, this irony doesn't even need to be to, pointed out is exactly what she accuses other people of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the fact that she, she manages to, I don't know if it's work this time, but th- the fact that she would manage to accru- accrue sympathy as some kind of di- dissident outsider truth teller is, you know, is, is frustrating to say the least. Yeah. Especially since her entire project is just her, to go against her mother, to destroy her mother's work, which is, you oh, know, yeah. always sort of, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't take a Freudian to kind of look at the dynamic and be like, okay, well, that's some issues. But what's the, you know, not to be all conspiracy theory, whatever, but um, what's Harper's Magazine's agenda in this? I mean, all, there's always been these women writers that places like the Atlantic, which is inherently misogynistic, um, hires in order to ar- articulate in a um, in a less obvious way by hiring a woman to do it um, their misogynistic agenda. Yeah. Um, Caitlin Flanagan is a very obvious example of that. You know, yeah. all of the essays that she did. Um, in the last couple decades of uh, women should not um, work outside of the home, et cetera, et cetera, in giving it kind of intellectual sheen, even though it was deeply fucked up. Mm-hmm. And her was uh, what her, hers was also about her mom yeah, um, because her mom 
uh, started working from home when Caitlin was a child and she felt abandoned. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, so um, <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of more obvious in the Atlantic because the Atlantic obviously hates women. Um, but Harper's, what's, what's Harper's agenda in hiring Katie Worifey? Because it's not like there aren't women critics, smart women critics, writing critically about the Me Too movement and its, you know, weird zones. Um, right. If they wanted a piece like that, there I could get, give them half a dozen names yeah. that aren't disingenuous in the way that Katie Royfe is. Right. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, look, I, I, I honestly think, I mean, I think you're right that, you know, some of these places have an agenda and, and you know, they, they try to find the best ways to express it without and get away with it. I, I do think there's a generation gap here that the there's an older generation of intellectuals who's very steeped in a a tradition about fair play and free speech and so on and so forth and and they feel disturbed by what's going on because they don't have a very nuanced view of it. Mm-hmm. And they are getting suckered by a lot of hucksters who can use that language uh in order to you know sneak in some some very you know regressive and nasty ideas for instance you know one of the things i wrote about uh, was at the hnrn center they brought in this guy from afd alternative for deutschland party mm-hmm. um you know and a lot of older you know it's it's obs- it's obscene to to bring this kind of german nationalist to the hnrn center it's just a, it's just a bad idea what was their justification for that? Their justification was that it was a po- it was a it was a conference on populism, so they wanted to hear it first thing. So, which is a thin justification if it's an academic conference. He's a politician, and he was elected, and he's going to give a stump speech. And his main enemy are immigrants and migrants. That's his political enemy. Mm-hmm. That's who he scores points off of. So, and calling Merkel, I mean, you know, Merkel can take care of herself. I don't yeah. need to defend Angela Merkel, but. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, uh, calling Merkel a legitimate leader. But it was a stump, but the point of that is that she, it was a stump speech. The the justifications for it were, you know, like this is about academic freedom and so on and so forth. You know, just divorcing it from the actual concrete circumstance, which is that they they invited this kind of crypto Nazi to um, to the Hannah Arendt Center, which is kind of desecration of her memory in most people, reasonable people's views. Mm-hmm. But as soon as they invoke this this language about academic freedom, because so, people are so touchy about that right mm-hmm. now, that they got sympathy from a lot of people I was surprised at. I mean, and, you know, they were defended. And I, I felt bad because I felt those people had been taken in by the dishonesty of the discourse and they were they were trying to live up to ideals that are not bad, mm-hmm. but they, they're blinded by adherence to these ideals. And they feel like if we let these go, like we're the last bastions of these ideals. And if we let them go, the world will fall into darkness. And so I think there are people, I mean, you know, to, this kind of brings it back to the other thing about the identity politics behind the enlightenment, mm-hmm. enlightenment fetish. There are people who honestly hold these ideas and they are ideas worth continuing to discuss and hold on to but they are often taken in by people of bad faith and it's very hard to tell people look you've been conned and um yeah the the people prey on on people's good faith 
belief in those and those very admirable ideas and the that is very low sort of game to play and you know i think as a writer and critic identifying when people are using rhetoric in that way is an extremely important task right now yeah um yeah so we the the main argument is what we should we should listen to the nazis so that we can um argue against their point and understand their worldview and and so on and so forth um yeah. and so we need so it's part of um that's why these people uh, these assholes keep getting uh, invited to universities you know the university of chicago and so on and so forth right. um in order to speak because we're we're exploring the limits of free speech et cetera et cetera et cetera well i mean yeah that that the problem, a uh, big problem with a lot of what we've been talking about is just the application of ro- rules to things. You know, we're in kind of a, an exceptional circumstance where a lot of norms that we thought functioned are breaking down or, or we're, you know, a- at their stress points. That requires using your judgment and understanding what is at stake in individual situations. It is not sufficient to apply broad rules and say, well, the, I, the principle of X takes care of all these, these problems. No, you have, if you are a politically engaged person or responsible person, each individual circumstance requires your focus. And, you know, you have to make a judgment call about, you know, what, what is actually being accomplished here? Mm-hmm. What are the, what are the people who are involved? What are their intentions? What is the political stakes here? The lack of judgment, of ability to apply judgment is endemic. Um, and it leads people to want to just say like, well, I'm a free speech person. Therefore, I can solve all these problems across the board. Or mm-hmm. like, I do not like, I, I'm an anti-fascist. So therefore, uh, my ever-increasing d- list of who's a fascist, <laughs> <laughs> like, uh demands that I not hear these people out. But the fact is, is like, you can't, life doesn't work that way. The the world isn't like that. It's a series of individual circumstances that you're confronted with and you have to deal with as individual circumstances. And it's not easy. It is, it is intellectually much harder to try to look at something and understand it as a particular, as an individual, as an individual case and what's at stake there than just to say, okay, well, I believe in X and therefore none of this or all of that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that, again, another important part of writing and criticizing things is to draw people's attention to the individuality of situations, the irreducibility and complexity of things, so they are not drawn to judge by large categories like that. Um, yeah, because the only thing sort of more annoying than the we should listen to the Nazis is the um, people, uh, pu- you should punch Nazis. Um, no one is punching, you're not punching a Nazi. Like somebody's on Twitter saying, Nazi puncher, like in uh, their, in put their your Twitter money name. Your mouth is, is. Like, yeah, yeah I, I've not, I've seen one video of somebody punching a Nazi. That's, yeah. You know, um, but you've written um, in the recent past um, about the sort of, um, the so-called intellectual tradition of the right uh, of the yeah. sort of like golden era of, of conservative thinking. Yeah. Um, 
and sort of thinking that, well, that the right has degraded intellectually, but that sort of um, makes you, you need to believe that there was right. a sort of intellectual tradition among conservatives, yeah. that it wasn't all sort of um, hogwash anyway. Yeah, okay. Okay, so there, I mean, in in the American politi- politics, there's kind of two schools of thought about what happened. There's kind of like Corey Robin, sort of, who who I think is great. I don't know, always agree with what he says. But he's like, look, you know, Trump is totally continuous with the conservative tradition. It was all shit from wall to wall. And, I mean, he says this in a very erudite and sophisticated way. So, <laughs> shit wall to wall. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And then there's more, you know, historians like Rick Perlstein who uh, who have a more conventional look on it that says like something that the cons- and conservatives own stories about it is that conservatives had pushed out of the movement something that came in with Trump. There was a a real fringe right and ideas that had been deemed unacceptable by the National Review, uh, kind of crept in after William F. Buckley's death. Mm-hmm. And which one of those stories is more true is not something that I think we can answer quickly. Um, is there a intellectually valid conservative tradition that's worth engaging with and not just discounting? I think you have to say, even though it's so deeply problematic and you always reading through it come to a point where you're like, this is just bullshit. You have to say yes, because I think the reason why these ideas animate people is psychologically understandable. And I think sometimes they land on things that are true. I mean, Edmund Burke kind of brilliantly thought that, look, if it, because of the French Revolution, with the, you, you can't, in the French Revolution, their mistake was to think we can uproot all the traditions of society and replace it with reason, mm-hmm. and it'll, everything will be fine. And he said, no, you know, the way people's, their manners and their culture and have all these deep roots that we don't even understand, he had this almost ecological understanding of society. Where if you move something or you, if you disrupt something, you don't know what the consequences are going to be, and they could be quite dire. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a brilliant insight, and I think that that's absolutely right. And the conservative impulse that is cautious about upturning things um, just willy-nilly, I mean, I think there's a lot to it. And it's that's the intellectual legacy of conservatism that I think you know should be paid attention to. However... For the most part, most thinking progressive people have already taken up that idea. They understand that you know societies are complex. They don't think that we can just create a geometric world. I mean, some tech people probably do. Where <laughs> we can use geometric reason to create some kind of utopia. Mm-hmm. Conservatives are no longer worried about this thick tissue of normative, you know concerns that keep us together and bonds of affection and respect between people that is not their concern anymore they are fighting a very desperate battle against rapid social changes so i think that the the best conservative ideas have already been for the most part appropriated by people on the left and liberals Mm -hmm. and the worst ones are still operating and exciting people politically on the right um yeah so the only conservative idea that i think is really but the problem with that is and this is what's problem with the whole tradition is the burke thing society is complex we shouldn't disrupt things 
that is a that is a defensive hierarchical political society. Mm-hmm. The we cannot destroy the privileges of the aristocracy because that's integral to the existence of the society. So there's always a uh, there's always an aspect about power and inequality there. So justifications of inequality I think you have to be very suspicious about obviously. <laughs> so um which is sort of a theme of what we're talking about. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't know. It, it, I love reading that stuff. I love these weirdos. I love their imaginations. Mm-hmm. I love the fears that they have. I love the Baroque and Gothic worlds that they create and the way they imagine their enemies. And it's fantastical and wonderful, but also very disturbing and depressing to read. <laughs> yeah. Forever. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.